Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. California is now the first state in the United States to prohibit the sale of dogs, cats, and rabbits in pet stores unless the animals are from a rescue organization or an animal shelter. That's amazing. Yeah, this is really big news. And this new law is an effort to crack down on puppy mills. Most of us know what puppy mills are. These are dirty, overcrowded puppy and kitten factories. Hundreds, sometimes thousands of dogs per facility live in overcrowded and unsanitary cages without sufficient food, water, grooming, socialization, or veterinary care. Now, just so you know, there were numerous cities in California that had already passed and implemented similar retail sale ban measures like Los Angeles, Long Beach, Hermosa Beach, West Hollywood, Burbank, Glendale, Laguna Beach, Irvine, Elisa Viejo, Dana Point, Garden Grove, and South Pasadena. So this statewide legislation started January 2019, and again, pet stores can only sell pets that are from a rescue group or a shelter and not from breeding facilities. This law is the first of its kind to take effect in the U.S., but other states like Washington State, New York, and New Jersey are considering similar legislation. Pet store owners who do not comply face a penalty of $500 per animal. And Lori, there was a fact sheet that was published by the supporters of this legislation, and it's got some interesting factoids in there, including that California taxpayers spend a quarter of a billion dollars annually to house animals in local shelters. Oh, that's nothing. Quarter of a billion dollars here and there, right? (laughs) Right. While puppy mills uh, throughout the country continue to mass breed animals for profit, as you explained, by offering puppies, cats, kittens, and rabbits for adoption from nearby shelters, the pet stores can save the lives of the animals in search of a home, save breeding animals trapped in puppy mills, and relieve pressure on county budgets and local taxpayers. People don't talk about the financial aspect that much, but it's it's part of this. That's right. Now, it's always interesting to see who supported and who opposed legislation like this. Yeah, let me guess. All breeders. (laughs) Well, let me give you who who supported it first. First of all, It was sponsored by Social Compassion in Legislation. That's skill. We've spoken uh, about them and to them on a number of occasions. There are many other individuals and groups in support, including Alley Cat Allies, California Animal Control Directors Association, the City of Colton, Fresno Humane Animal Services, San Diego Humane Society, the San Diego House Rabbit Society, the David Toro Foundation, and uh, many others. Now, opposing included the American Kennel Club, of course, California Retailers Association, Dog Owners of the Golden State, English Cocker Spaniel Club of Southern California, the German Shepherd Club of America, and others. Now, it should be evident to anyone that the reason for the opposition is uh, financial and to protect their turf as sellers of animals. But really, the tide has turned. And uh, now that California has instituted this law, I bet you the rest of the country will follow. So now I want to offer some news on ag-gag laws and what's happened in Iowa, okay? So many of you know uh, the ag-gag, ag gag ag G-A-G, that's the label for this 
type of law which aims to target whistleblowers, particularly those who try to go undercover and document abuses in agricultural farms and factory farms, usually by videotaping. So these are anti-whistleblower laws, and they've become pretty popular. And you see these popping up in many states, but they are starting to be struck down as unconstitutional. The latest example comes from Iowa. They had a law that was just struck down. The law made it illegal to get a job at a livestock farm in order to conduct animal cruelty undercover investigations. The judge, the federal judge, found the law violated the constitutional right to free speech. So First Amendment violation. Now, how did we get here? Way back when, in 2011, there were two important undercover video investigations, one at Iowa Select Farms, where employees were documenting smashing piglets onto a concrete floor, and then another undercover investigation for an Iowa Hormel food supplier, which documented employees beating pigs with metal rods and other things. Now, these videos were widely viewed, and it caused quite a reaction because people were really shocked to see how these animals were treated in the production of their food. Consequently, in 2012, the reaction of the Iowa legislature was to make the obtaining of these videos crime, an ag-gag law. There are different varieties of these laws. Some aim to criminalize obtaining a job under false pretenses. Some aim at the video documentation, but they all are designed to prevent the public from knowing what goes on in these facilities. In 2013, the Animal Legal Defense Fund and colleagues uh, filed the nation's first ag-gag lawsuit against the state of Utah, and uh, two years later, it was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. District Court. Another lawsuit was filed against the state of Idaho the next year, and then in 2015, the Idaho law was ruled unconstitutional. And uh, in 2017, the Utah statute was ruled unconstitutional. And in the Iowa law that was just struck down, the ACLU got involved in that one too. And the legal director for ACLU of Iowa called the ruling an important victory for free speech. Ag-gag clearly is a violation of Iowans' First Amendment right to free speech. It has effectively silenced advocates and ensured that animal cruelty, unsafe food safety practices, environmental hazards, and inhumane working conditions go unreported for years. And that is quite true. In the years that ag-gag laws are in place, you find an absence of undercover investigations. They really have the intended effect. Wherever these laws pop up, there are legal challenges led by Animal Legal Defense Fund and also PETA and other groups. So good news out of Iowa. And uh, let's see if instead of trying to hide their abuses, they try to clean up their act a little bit. Yeah, I sure hope so. Changing topics here, Peter, a few weeks ago, you spoke about how veganism is on the rise and vegan and plant-based eating is really gaining popularity. In addition, going vegan was predicted to be the biggest food trend of 2018. So more evidence that the demand for vegan food is huge is not only more and more restaurants are offering vegan options, but more fast food franchises are deciding to offer vegan choices as well. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and here are just a few examples. Listen to this. Del Taco is partnering with Beyond Meat. As you know, Beyond Meat is a Los Angeles-based company that produces plant-based meat substitutes. And so what Del Taco is doing is using Beyond Meat fake 
hamburger crumbles in a proprietary blend of taco meat to make Beyond Tacos. So far, those tacos are only available in some Del Taco locations in California. Never been in one of those. Yeah, me neither. KFC is now offering VFC. You can get a bucket of vegan fried chicken and buttermilk biscuits that are dairy-free and vegan coleslaw. And the vegan chicken is made by Tyson Foods. Peter, didn't you mention a couple weeks ago that Tyson Foods purchased steak and Beyond Meat? They did. So that's really interesting. Yeah. McDonald's is experimenting with a couple different vegan burgers. Carl's Jr., another fast food chain partnering with Beyond Meat to make a vegan version of the Carl's Jr. famous Star Burger. And this will be available at more than a thousand Carl Jr. restaurants throughout the country. Bikini included? <laughs> yeah, keep dreaming, Peter. Yeah. In the UK, you can find vegan cheese pizza at Pizza Hut's. Bob's Big Boy in Burbank, California, offers a vegan burger with a patty made by Hungry Planet. Did they have Bob's Big Boys where you were growing up, nope, Peter? No. Nope. Where did you grow up again? Oh, oh yeah. That place there. called the, the East Coast. <laughs> no Bob's there? I don't think so. Hmm. I didn't get out much as a child. Yeah, it sounds that way. And I'll say one more. Subway. You know, if a vegan walks into a Subway, you get a vegetables between two pieces of bread. Of course, no cheese, no mayo. But now in 540 locations, you can get the Malibu Garden Sub, which is like a veggie patty, and the Black Bean Patty Sub. Peter, growing up, did your family take in from fast food restaurants? We would mostly go to them, yeah. like a little outing. We'd go to McDonald's and some other local places I remember yeah. that. But uh, this is long before the awakening. So when's the last time you remember being in a McDonald's? McDonald's. Oh, wow. It's been quite a number of years, but maybe five years. I got coffee. Black coffee. Great. So now, given you might be offered a vegan option at one of these restaurants, would you eat it on them? You know, that's really a good question. On one hand, do you want to you know, patronize them because they're still you know, in the animal killing industry? On the other hand, do you want to encourage them to have these products? So I can see both ways. For me, I probably, if I was hungry and it was convenient and it wasn't too unhealthful, I probably would do it if I needed to in a pinch. But I don't think I would uh, do it too often. How about you? You know, similar. It depends. I don't know. Would I eat a bucket of deep fried vegan chicken from KFC? No, because it's highly processed. It's loaded with saturated fat from deep frying and way too high in sodium for me. But would I eat vegan Carl's Jr. burger made with Beyond Meat vegan patty? I don't think I could be convinced that they're going to cook my burger on a different burner mm -hmm. or a different skillet or without it touching some bacteria-infested surface or meat sitting somewhere. And how do I know that the person preparing my burger washed his hands after touching some raw animal products? Am I a vegan snob? You are a genius vegan. Now, I know you take this chance when you order at any restaurant, your food coming in contact with dirty hands or dirty surfaces, but since this is a new concept for fast food restaurants and since there's a reason it's called fast food, I just don't think the time, level of attention or interest will be offered to these mm. kinds of concerns. Mm. So I guess the answer is no. Okay, we'll get your update a year from now and see what you think. Okay, don't go away. More with Animals Today right after the break. Each year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. 
Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end without water to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom, so don't support it and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way. Don't bet, don't go to tracks, and avoid parties that celebrate racing. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back to the show. Once in a while, we hear about the idea of having a pig as a family pet. We even reviewed a book about this, and the pig's adopters were very surprised that their pig, who they named Esther the Wonder Pig, was actually not a miniature potbelly pig, but quickly grew to be a full-size pig weighing 650 pounds. That, of course, caused many challenges, but Esther's family took them on. One thing led to another, and in very short order, they purchased property and started a farm animal sanctuary called Happily Ever Esther Sanctuary, which is in Ontario, Canada. It's a very nice story, but probably if one wants to rescue a pig, you want to make sure it's a small variety. Now, we all know how intelligent pigs are, but realistically, can a typical family or any family successfully and happily have a pig as a companion animal? To talk about having pigs as pets, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Evelyn McKay. She is a resident veterinarian in large animal internal medicine at Texas A&M College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. She recently wrote an article about this very topic. Welcome to the show, Evelyn. Thank you. Evelyn, how common is it for American families to have a pig as a pet? I think it's becoming increasingly common. You know, back when I was a kid, I remember in the 90s, it was a little bit of a fad to have pot-bellied pigs, and I didn't see them for a while. But for uh, the majority of my short veterinary career, I have seen many, many pigs. Distinguish between miniature or pot-bellied pigs and full-sized pigs who might have been rescued before going to the slaughterhouse. Yeah. So, you know, when people confuse the two, which does happen, especially with, you know, Esther the Wonder Pig is a good example of that. It's usually when they're babies. So most of the pigs look the same when they're babies. They're all born very small, you know, one to two pounds, and they have tiny little toes, tiny little noses, and kind of these floppy little ears. And um, they all look the same when they're little, but as they grow up, we start to see pretty profound differences between the two. And, you know, it's when they're sold when they're little is how, um, you know, people end up with kind of the unintended kind of pig. Right. Um, the traditional pot-bellied pig that um, grows up that people think of as pet pigs, those are kind of the same as mini pigs. Um, I talked in that article is that there's not really such a thing as a true mini pig. You know, we'd all love to have a pet pig that only weighs 20 pounds and we can carry around in our arms all day, but even the smallest pet pigs are going to be around 60 to 80 pounds. Um, and they, you know, they're, they're shorter statured. Um, they're not as muscled. They're a little bit more fat. And they have kind of a different face conformation and ears and that sort of thing. So they're still big animals like our production breeds that live on farms, but uh, they do look remarkably different. Why would a family want to have a pig as a pet? What are some of the positives? 
oh, they're lovely. Um, they're very smart. And I think that in some ways they kind of remind me of dogs. They can be, you know, very loyal, loving um, companions, and they can learn tricks. They like Some of them like going on walks. Um, and they also like to veg out and cuddle. Um, they love belly rubs. One of my favorite things to do with pigs um, that I teach my students is kind of a gentle way to restrain pigs for exams is rubbing their belly or forking them. So they they really like being scratched and mm. kind of itched all over. And if you take like a plastic fork or even a metal fork and just kind of gently touch them on their back and kind of tap them, it's probably similar to how we feel about getting a scalp massage and their little hairs bristle up and they... Uh, make little cute pig noises and roll over. Um, so they can be very affectionate and fun animals. Um, I think anyone who grew up with pigs would probably say the same. They're very smart and intelligent and inquisitive and, you know, just the same reasons we love dogs and cats. That's right. Evelyn, what are the biggest challenges that a family who adopts a pig could expect? Yeah, I think that um, behavior and training is probably one of the biggest ones, just like any other pet. Um, you know, they have their own sense of independence and will, and sometimes it doesn't always line up with ours. So convincing a pig to do what we want to do can be a little challenging sometimes. But they're actually pretty neat and meticulous animals that are prefer to be potty trained. Um, most pigs like to have an area where they're allowed to urinate and defecate. That's not where they relax and um, sleep. So, you know, teaching them those skills, teaching them not to be destructive because they are naturally very curious and sometimes they want to chew on your furniture or, you know, root through blankets, um, which is, you know, issues we encounter with dogs as well. So kind of, you know, training them to be good housemates and roommates and respectful of things around them. They can also be quite protective and if they feel threatened or they feel upset like their territory is being encroached on, sometimes they can lash out by, um, you know, vocalizing a lot um, and occasionally biting. So making them feel safe and secure so that they can be, you know, kind of cooperative family members can be a challenge for people who haven't handled pigs before. And probably one of the things that people don't expect is just handling the routine care that comes with pigs. So they often need their feet trimmed regularly, especially if they live inside. They need dental care you know, routine vaccinations, that kind of thing. Very similar to a dog. Exactly. I know some very pampered pigs who walk on harnesses. They only go outside, you know, when they use the bathroom and they sleep on the couch or even sleep in the bed sometimes. Um, so they're certainly amenable to that lifestyle. And what do they eat? Um, I usually recommend to my clients that they feed a commercial diet formulated for pigs. So that's going to have a very balanced, you know, mineral and um, vitamin profile. Pigs are a little bit prone to some nutritional diseases, and they're also very prone to obesity. So I really encourage my clients to make sure that they feed an appropriate, you know, nutrition plan. So that means making sure they're getting all their nutrients, nutrients without giving them too many calories. So Missouri, Purina, there's a few kind of commercial brands that owners can buy and feed their pigs. So I recommend that as the main bulk of the diet. And if they are going to feed treats, I recommend green leafy vegetables only. So low calorie fibrous snacks. So lettuce, broccoli, that kind of thing. And like dogs, they have sensitive GI tracts. So we try not to challenge them with anything too greasy or too sugary. Do families need to be constantly bathing them if they're playing in the mud all day outside and then come into the house? How do you deal with that? <laughs> That's 
certainly a personal preference thing. Some of the ones that have time outside, they will get muddy. Um, but a lot of the pot-bellied pigs that I've worked with stay relatively clean, even if they are allowed time outside. Um, and some of them do like having baths. Um, they do have sensitive skin, though, um, so I'd recommend you know not using any perfumed products on them and not bathing them more than you absolutely have to. Do pigs get along with other pets like dogs, cats, and rabbits? Oh yes, they certainly can. They often, like I said before, they can be a little bit territorial. So they can often be a more dominant force in the household. Um, they're not usually afraid of sticking up to dogs and that kind of thing. But even so, um, I always you know, tell people to be very careful about having dogs and pigs together, especially if the dog is much larger than the pigs. We do see um, dog attacks, unfortunately, in some of our pig patients here where I work. And it's usually because you know a pig runs away or gets scared and that kind of provokes the uh, predator instinct in a dog. So they can certainly get along, but you know you should make sure that the size difference is not extreme and that the two are introduced in a supervised way and you monitor kind of how their relationship goes. But many live together well. So families can indeed provide a happy and healthy life for rescued pigs, correct? Yeah, I certainly think so. Um, just like with any other kind of pet, if people have the time and are willing to, um, you know, put the time into researching how to provide them an appropriate and safe environment, I think they can provide lovely homes. So if someone's considering rescuing a pig, how can they learn more? Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I think contacting a reputable um, humane society or local rescue, they can help you if they have pigs and it's something they take care of and are helpful. Um, they can be helpful in that regard. Also talking to your local veterinarian. Um, not all vets are comfortable seeing pigs, but there are a few that are. Um, always be careful about what you read online. Um, you know, try to read everything with a grain of salt. And I usually recommend kind of going to your veterinarian first with questions about pigs and their care. Thank you, Dr. Evelyn McKay. Thank you. It was great being with you. Listening to Animals Today, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Like us on Facebook and go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Each week we bring you the latest animal news from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like what you hear, consider donating to our cause of promoting compassion and respect for all animals. That website site again is aianimals.org. Two recent penguin stories caught our attention and I wanted to share them with you. To do this, I am pleased to welcome back to the show Diane DiNapoli, the penguin lady, to tell us about them and to update us on penguin conservation worldwide. She is a TED and Nat Geo speaker and author of The Great Penguin Rescue. Welcome, Diane. Thank you for having me. So a huge colony of penguins was recently discovered on Antarctic islands. How do they evade detection and how are they found? So uh, the, the story that you're referring to is around the danger islands, which are off the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. And what they just discovered there recently was a colony of Adelie penguins that was about one and a half million penguins strong. And... The interesting thing about the story was the thing, the reason they really didn't know how many penguins were there previously is because this area is so hard to get to. You know, it's very, very stormy seas, lots of cliffs, 
So it's very difficult to actually land there and see the islands firsthand. And the way they discovered this colony was actually through satellite imagery. And so several years back, they discovered that using satellite imagery, they could detect penguin colonies on the ice because of the guano stains, basically the penguin poo, it, it leaves the ice stained usually sort of a brown or a pink, depending on what the penguins are eating. And so they started noticing these little, you know, brown and pink spots on satellite images and realized like, oh, those are penguin colonies. And so when they discovered this on the Danger Islands, it's an archipelago of nine islands, um, they actually did get a landing party there eventually. It took some time to plan that and get there, but they did go in 2015. And they landed on the islands, and they actually sent up drones to take photos that way. And so that was how they did the actual count, was by you know piecing together all the photos that the drones took. Um, and so they were really stunned to see this huge, huge, massive colony there that they really they knew there was colonies there, mm-hmm. but they had no idea to the extent and the size of those colonies until then. How many individuals do they estimate? Do they find? So the estimated, uh, let me see, exact number of pairs that they counted is 751,527 pairs. So that's over a million and a half individuals. And what's the significance of this discovery? Well, it actually greatly uh, boosts the known population number of the Adelie penguins. So uh, in Antarctica, this is on the, um, the east coast of the peninsula. And what we have seen over time is a decline in the colonies, on, especially on the western coast of the Antarctic Peninsula, because that western uh, coast is essentially being very highly impacted by climate change and global warming and, and warming temperatures. And so they've been seeing a decrease in the penguin colonies. And they really didn't know what was happening to the penguins. They didn't know, are they just dying? Are they going someplace else and not coming back? We don't really know. And so theoretically, maybe where some of these penguins have gone is to this danger island region. Okay, so then there is another recent story. This one appeared in the journal Science. Well, at least that's where I saw it, where researchers discovered human pathogenic bacteria in the feces of penguins, leading them to wonder if tourists can be a threat to penguins. Tell us what you know about that one. Right. So what I know about this one, you know, there's this thing called reverse zoonosis. So when um, human disease can impact animals, whereas, you know, regular zoonosis is the opposite, when animal disease can impact, can transfer to humans. And so what they they found is that they took cloacal swabs. So essentially, they wanted to get the most direct source of the guano to collect. And so the penguins have this common opening called a cloaca, and everything comes out there. And so they got, you know, very sterile samples inside the cloacas of, of hundreds of different seabirds, not just penguins. It was also albatross and skuas and giant petrels and gulls. And they essentially um, studied, I think it was 666 individuals. And what they found were a few different types of bacteria that you will also find in human populations. Um, so Campylobacter and Seminilla and something called C. Um And the thing is, 
you know, I, I saw some of these headlines, and it sounds all very melodramatic, and oh my God, you know, the penguins are all going to die. But they really have not found any evidence that um, any penguins have died uh, as a result of this, these bacteria that they're seeing. Okay, well, that's reassuring. By the way, what's the best way for people to view penguins, to get, get up close to them as tourists? Well, certainly there are a lot of different uh, operations and organizations that will bring people out to different regions to see penguins. So, you know, I would do research and make sure you're going with a reputable, reputable organization. Um, but you, know, you can see penguins throughout the southern hemisphere, from the Galapagos Islands uh, down to Antarctica, to South America, to South Africa, to Australia, to New Zealand. So there are now 19 different species throughout the world. And I say 19 because until Recently, they thought it was 18, but there were three subspecies of rockhopper penguins that they now realize are three distinct species. Um, and so there are a lot of coastal regions that you can travel to um, to see penguins. And in fact, I'm going to be uh, going back to Antarctica in February and March uh, as a guest lecturer for Lindblad Expeditions and National Geographic, which is a fantastic organization to travel with. And they have you know, great expedition leaders and naturalists on board as well. Boy, that's one of the things I really would like to do when I can swing it. How exciting that must be. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool to get to go to Antarctica. Yeah. So earlier you mentioned global warming. So uh, mm -hmm. what are the important issues surrounding penguins worldwide in terms of their conservation? Right. So really, penguins in whole, as a whole are in deep trouble. So we're seeing very precipitous declines in their populations. And so now 14 of the 19 penguin species are listed as either endangered, threatened, or vulnerable, or near threatened. And so their populations have been crashing pretty rapidly, especially over the last 25 to 50 years. And so this is all due to human impacts. So everything from oil pollution to plastics now pollution, habitat encroachment, introduced predators, and the top two threats to penguins today are actually overfishing and climate change. And so both of these things, are, the, the way it's impacting them for the most part is through the loss of their food source. And so one of the big things that's happening with climate change with the changing temperatures of the ocean is it's moving the cold water currents that carries the penguins' food. So they're having to swim further away and deeper to try and find enough food to feed both themselves and their growing chicks. And a lot of times they just aren't able to do that now. And they're seeing a lot of starvation in a lot of different penguin species. Boy, oh boy. You know, we talk about plastics all the time on this show and everyone's all excited about plastics in the sea. And uh, recently we covered a couple of whales that were found to have many pounds of plastics in their bellies. Mm. Do we know for sure that plastics are harming penguins or are we just sort of speculating still with them? No, they, it's, you know, as with all seabird species now, uh, upon necropsy and, you know, basically an autopsy on an animal, um, they are finding plastic in the stomachs of these animals, including in the stomachs of penguins. And, and with penguins, that is a more recent finding. They've been seeing this in albatross for longer. Um, and maybe some of your listeners have seen some of these very graphic images of the dead chicks and albatross parents and chicks on these islands where 
you know, you see a skeleton and feathers and then just where the belly would be, it's just tons of plastic. Um, so it's, it's rather disturbing. Um, so it's sort of really this red flag warning us, like, we really have to be more mindful um, of our use of single-use plastics and how we dispose of these things as well, you know, to recycle because, you know, our oceans are getting just so polluted. Diane, I would like to uh, direct listeners to check out your your videos, and there's so much great information that we're not going to be able to get to, and a lot of your early work has to do with response to oil spills. How do we respond to them now compared to, say, a decade ago? Are we geared up better to handle the cleanup efforts and the saving the lives of uh, oiled birds? Well, you know, I think in every wildlife rescue, we learn things. And certainly in the treasure oil spill that you're referring to, that that's what we spoke about last time um, that you had me on the show, and that was, I think, in 2010 or 11. That was, uh, that oil spill was in 2000. And they we were already using techniques in that oil spill that we had learned from an oil spill six years earlier. And since then, some of the techniques we used during the treasure oil spill rescue have been used in other oil uh, penguin rescues from oil spills. So there's always, you know, new techniques and new approaches um, that are being learned every single time there's a rescue effort. So, um, so yeah, we always can put those things into place in the future. Diane, any final thoughts on what individuals can do to help protect and save penguins? Yes, I'm glad you asked. Um, I always, you know, I, I do like to end on a hopeful note when I tell people about these things so that people can feel empowered to do something. And there are actually a lot of things that we can do as individuals from choosing sustainable seafood, if we're going to be eating seafood, um, to reducing our reliance on fossil fuels, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, and if people want to do something about, you know, climate change in their own backyard, I always recommend there are a lot of different um, footprint cal- carbon footprint calculators, and one that I always recommend is called carbonfootprint.org. And so you can figure out exactly how much carbon am I putting into the atmosphere every year, and it gives you resources and suggestions and tips and tools for reducing your carbon output. Um, and so that's a, an easy tool to use to vote, become politically involved, especially on a local level. And, you know, if you want to do something really specific, you can always donate to a penguin conservation group. And so SANCOB in South Africa is one that I regularly uh, donate to, and that's S-A-N-C-C-O-B dot C-O dot Z-A is their URL if people are interested in doing that. And how can they find you? Ah, um, well, I am at thepenguinlady.com. I'm currently my, I have a new website that should be up soon. And if they want to email, if they have any questions, I'm Diane, D-Y-A-N, at thepenguinlady.com. Diane DiNapoli, thank you so much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you for having me. More after the break. Pleased to welcome to the show Alana Kirschenbaum. She is New Leaf Program Manager at Catskill Animal Sanctuary, and we've asked her to come on and tell us about her program. Hi, Alana. Hi, Peter. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Okay, so tell us about New Leaf. 
Well, New Leaf is a vegan mentor program that helps people around the world become vegan and commit to it for their life. And the way that we do that is through a very sophisticated software technology that we've acquired using a proven one-on-one mentor relationship with a trained vegan mentor. Mentors and mentees can connect through the, the technology platform we have, or they can talk on the phone, they can Skype with one another, they can text, they can meet in person if they live uh, close to one another. And we welcome anyone in the program that's interested in moving towards vegan living, as well as those who are already vegan. We have a number of applicants that have applied to our program who are already vegan and need some support, and we welcome them. We also welcome people that are not yet ready to go vegan, but maybe they want to reduce their consumption of animals, or maybe they're open to learning more. Um, We have people that have applied to our program with an initial goal of becoming vegetarian, but once they connect with a mentor, they expand their goal and they want to become vegan. And so that's what we're all about. We're all about welcoming people wherever they are and helping them move forward to live a life that reflects their values so that we can create a more just and compassionate world for all species and the planet. What inspired this idea and uh, how long has it been up and running? There's such a surge in interest in veganism. When I, I started years ago a nonprofit called Rhode Island Vegan Awareness. So when I co-founded that organization and led it for 10 years, we never thought we'd be at a place in society where we are now where there's this huge explosion in the marketplace where you see so many new vegan products on the shelves every year coming out. And there's major media attention from major outlets like The Economist just forecasted 2019 as the year of the vegan. Yes. And the research shows that 84% of people that um, aspire to become vegetarian and vegan give up. And so that's a really sobering statistic. And so we have a vision at Catskill Animal Sanctuary to not only rescue animals, but educate people and help us move towards a more vegan society. And when we looked and did research into other vegan mentor programs, we discovered a number of programs that were no longer active anymore and others that were facing challenges such as inadequate resources for oversight, growth, evaluation, and measuring outcomes. And so between those realities and our, our mission to move veganism fully into the mainstream, we knew it was critical to develop an innovative model that solved the gaps that we uncovered in our research and surpassed existing programs in terms of impact, our outcomes, and the scale of the program. And so we know that people that want to become vegan struggle in many areas. They don't know what to eat. They don't know what to buy at the market. They don't know anyone who's vegan. And some of the practical and social challenges that some people face can become very overwhelming. And if you don't know anyone else who's vegan, those challenges can really discourage people and then they'll give up. We developed a pilot last year to test the program out and it was really powerful and we 
launched our website in the fall, newlyvegans.org, and we launched our program officially in late fall. And in a matter of only a couple months, we've had applicants from over 19 countries outside of the United States. So we're really excited. That's great. So how does an aspiring vegan or vegetarian start? When they go to the website, what will they find? Well, when you go to the website, I mean, you'll find information clearly about how to join the program, information about what vegan means. There's some recipes. There's some tips for going and staying vegan. And anyone who's interested in joining the program, it's really easy. You simply just sign up using a simple form on the website, and you create your own personalized profile. And then our software will recommend a list of mentors whose profiles more closely match your preferences. And then you can look at those mentors and look at their profiles and make a decision about who you want to work with. And then once you choose your mentor, you just reach out to them and begin working together. And where do the mentors come from and how do they get involved? The mentors really come from all over. When we did the pilot, most of the mentors were locally based in the New York, New Jersey area. But now that we've launched officially, we have mentors you know, all over the country, and we, we get new applicants every day. We encourage vegans to apply who are available one to four hours a week, who are interested in accelerating the vegan movement forward and eager to help others. And again, it's simply, you simply fill out a, an online application, and then we ask you to complete an online training, which you can do from the comfort of your home, and that takes, it takes under five hours, probably about four hours to do. And then you create your own personalized profile, and, and mentees will then reach out to you requesting your support. And this is... So, you know, it's really wonderful. A lot of the mentors in our program, both in the a program, we, our official program we just launched in our pilot, really talk about how it's so wonderful that they've gained these new advocacy skills that are so positive, that they're able to work with people who are receptive, and they're not having all these conversations that are met with resistance because the people in our program are really eager to make changes in their lives. And, you know, you become part of a a global community working to create a more just world for all beings. We're so grateful to all of our mentors. They're such a wonderful group of people, and they embrace the approach that we have where we're welcoming people, we're not judging them, and we're encouraging them, and we're inviting them to, you know, be part of this movement that is so powerful in the world. And the price is right, isn't it? The price is right. It's free. <laughs> Who can beat that? So, yeah, we, you know, we don't want to create barriers for people to making these changes in their lives. And, you know, times are tough for a lot of people, and we, we are committed to keeping this program free. And the mentors that are in our program have an abundant number of resources at their fingertips. And um, there's so much so many ways that a mentor can help someone and and simply just by being by their side and rooting them on sometimes is enough for someone to just feel really motivated to stay the course and commit to this change in their life. We're super excited. Well, we are too. And we love this idea. Tell us the website. The website is uh, newleafvegans.org. No punctuation, just newleafvegans.org. And we are excited to scale and grow this program to reach hundreds of thousands of people in the next few years. And we are going to do that with the cultivation of robust 
partnerships with like-minded corporations, organizations, individuals, and brands that recognize the power and promise of our program. So if you're interested in partnering with New, with New Leaf, we welcome you. We have information about partnership opportunities on our website, and we'd love to talk with you. Alana Kirschenbaum, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about this great program. Thank you so much for having us. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.